Yahweh, we just thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you are a God unlike any other God, um, both in your sovereignty over the entire universe and um, also your love and desire to intervene into history and to redeem us. No other God is both those things simultaneously, and we thank you for that. And we thank you for the power of Hebrews and drawing all those, those two points out and just unpacking you and your Son and just in a tremendous way. And we thank you for the depth that is there, what we're being to understand and learn from you. And thank you also that even after a couple reads and a couple studies, um, there's still just so much more there that we will spend the rest of our life and even eternity unpacking and understanding who you are. We thank you that you are a complex God, um, that there is no end to the exploration and the newness that we'll discover in you. I pray that you be with us tonight. Just give us clarity of mind. Just allow us, our hearts and our minds to be clear and calm from whatever was going on today. Let us just come and we pray that the Holy Spirit reveals His truth to us. Um, not my words, but His words. Anything that is wrong, just please let them forget. And um, I just pray that you would be glorified and our understanding of you would be deepened. In Jesus' name and according to His will, Amen. Chapter 1, verse 5. We left off on verse 8 last week. Um, but to get us back into the kind of the context of everything, remember this is how Christ is superior to the angels for the reason that the angels mediated the Old Covenant to the people of Israel. And the Old Covenant was one of the most important things to all of Israel. So if you're going to proclaim Jesus' covenant greater than the Old Covenant, you must first explain why I should value the new covenant when the old covenant was given through angels and Moses and so many other things. And the other reason is that angels were also called the Son of God. So how is Christ unique in that sense? One through four unpacked really how Jesus Christ is a different Son of God. Now we're going to see how he's different from the angels specifically. Verse 5, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have fathered you. And in another place he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. But when he again brings his firstborn into the world and he says, Let all the angels of God worship him. And he says of the angels, he makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And a righteous scepter is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, your God, has anointed you over your companions with the oil of rejoicing. And you founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. They will all grow old like a garment, and like a robe you will fold them up, and like a garment they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will never run out. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who will inherit salvation? We talked about the first two reasons that Christ is superior to the angels. The third reason is found in verses 8 through 12, and is that Christ is superior to the angels because he is the ruler over creation with an everlasting kingdom. Now, that's already been made in verses 1 through 4, but now he's specifically making a comparison to the angels. Why? Because last week we left off with Deuteronomy, 
And Deuteronomy made the point that angels were put in charge of the different nations. That God made the angels, the princes, the the rulers over different nations. But these angels rebelled against God and fell, and so they took the nations with them. And so if angels are seen as ruling over the nations, then how is Christ a greater ruler than the angels if we're saying that he's over all creation? And so that's what Psalm 45 is going to do. This quotation is from Psalm 45, verses 1, 6 through 9. So let's go back to the context. Remember, this is where it takes all the time plowing through, is in the context. So Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is an enthronement song. It's psalm. It's basically, we have a courtier. And a courtier is a court attendant to the king. And they're basic, he's basically talking about the Davidic king and giving praise to Yahweh, and then honoring the Davidic king for his establishment. It is also a wedding song. The Davidic king is getting married, so it's putting it in its place. So, verses 1 through um, 5, the courtier is basically talking about the person and the majesty of the king. And so it reads this way, My heart is stirred by a beautiful song. I say I have composed a special song for the king. My tongue is as skilled as the stylus of an experienced scribe. You are the most handsome of all men. You speak in an impressive and fitting manner. For this reason, God grants you continual blessings. Strap on your sword to your thigh, a warrior. Appear in your majestic splendor. Appear in your majesty and be victorious. Ride forth for the sake of what is right, on behalf of justice. Then your right hand will accomplish mighty acts. Your arrows are sharp and penetrate the hearts of the kings and the enemies. Nations fall at your feet. And so he's talking about the majesty of the king that he's unlike any other king compared to all the other nations. But he's also talking about the king as a warrior. But not just a warrior that is bent on conquest to dominate, but a warrior that establishes justice and makes things right in the nations that surround them. But notice in verse 2 at the very end, it says, For this reason God grants you continual blessings. Once again, that hints to what we talked about last time. Either we've always got to have a Davidic king all the time sitting on the throne continual in order to get the continual blessings, or we have to have a Davidic king that's on the throne forever to get the continual blessings. And as we keep going on, the scriptures begin to hint that there's no way this can be a Davidic king sitting on the throne all the time because of the exile and the 400 silent years. So therefore, this must be an eternal king. And more and more passages begin to hint that. So we see that allusion made there. In verses 6 through 9, the courtier switches and he begins to talk about the statehood of the Davidic um, Sorry, he begins to talk about the statehood of the Davidic king. Um, But he begins to make some points that become odd for us. So in verse 6, Your throne, O God, is permanent. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You love justice and hate evil. For this reason, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy, elevating you above your companions. All your garments are perfumed with myrrh, alloys, and cassia. From the luxurious palaces comes he, the music of stringed instruments that makes you happy. Princesses are among your honored guests. Your bride stands at your right hand wearing jewelry made with gold from Ophri. Listen, O princess, observe and pay attention. Forget your homeland and your family. Then the king will be attracted by your beauty. After all, he is your master. Submit to him. Now what is odd 
is that in verse forty, or verse seven, he says, "Your love, you love justice, you hate evil. For this reason, God, the Davidic King, God, your God, Yahweh in heaven, has anointed you with the oil of joy." So he's talking to King, the, the King, and he says, "God." That should catch you off guard. Why in the world did he just call the king God? And he makes it very clear that he's not talking about Yahweh in heaven because he says, God, your God up there has anointed you. But he's anointed him, which makes it clear that he's talking about the Davidic king because God was never anointed. So he's making it very clear he's talking about two gods here. He's talking to the king, your God, and your God has anointed you, which only the, the king gets anointed. And so that's very odd. What in the world is the psalmist doing? Because any Jew would see that's totally heretical. Now this isn't completely unnormal, because in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, God has called Moses. And he's sending Moses. This is right before Moses is going to go to Pharaoh and start saying, let my people go and bring the plagues. And God says, I will make you, as, I will make you a god to Pharaoh. Okay, and so that's not odd. That's, that's very rare has God ever called anybody a God. But he says, you will be a God to Pharaoh, meaning this. You're going to speak on my behalf. Okay, you're going to speak as if you are me. And in that sense, you're going to be my voice piece, as you're going to be my scribe, my ambassador. So you're going to be as if you are God to the Pharaoh. But what's a little bit different here is, one, this is smack dab in the middle of Davidic typology. And Davidic typology is already hinted at the fact that the Davidic king is going to last forever. And so in the midst of all this typology of an eternal king, we now have him saying, you're not going to be like a god or as a god, a simile. You're God. He calls him directly God. Now, in hindsight, we can look back at this and it's obvious who this is. This is Jesus. And then we go in and he keeps talking about the bride has been prepared for you, which is the exact language of the Gospels and Jesus used of the church as the bride. And this is why the significance is when you get into Ezekiel 11 and Hosea 2 and Joel 2 and Jeremiah 31, there's language of the Messiah coming as a bride, that God will be our husband and we will be his bride and we'll have a more intimate relationship with him. So you get to Jesus and he, his first miracle was the water into wine. Well, why did he do it at a wedding? Because he was announcing that the groom has come for the bride. And he's here. And so that's why the significance of the wedding. And so this is the language here, that this is a foreshadowing of Christ as a God and Messiah coming for his bride Israel slash church. And so this is a hint, a foreshadowing of the fact that he is God. And that's the point that the author of Hebrews is making, is when he emphasizes this by saying, Your throne, O God, forever and ever. Now in Psalm, he's addressing Yahweh as God the first time, and then says, King David, God, your God. Now the author of Hebrews says, well, according to Hebrews 1-4, through Jesus is the Son of God, he is God, so therefore now this is Jesus. Jesus, your throne is forever and ever. And then he makes it clear and says, A righteous scepter is a scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. So God, Jesus, your God, Yahweh, has anointed you. And now he takes what should have been odd. If you're a Jew, you're thinking, Wow, that's really odd. I mean, that's kind of blasphemous. But I can't argue with it because Yahweh said it. 
but I don't know what to do with it. There's a lot of things that the Jews, we kind of do this too, where it gets really uncomfortable and unfamiliar. So we just kind of put it in a little box and put it on a shelf, and we just don't really teach Sunday school class lessons on those passages in the Bible. And then, and then some kid like discovers it on their own, you're like, oh, why did you have to do your devotions in that one? So, so the Jews did the same thing. Wait a minute, that's blasphemous. King David is not God. This is not a simile. But God said it, so on the shelf it goes. And we're not going to talk about that one, you 12-year-old boy, as we're preparing you for your bar mitzvah. And so that's what they did. But now the Hebrews just pulls it out and says, you deal with it. Deal with it. God said it. And it has to mean something, especially when you put in the context of all the other typology. Which should make you think of Isaiah 9, 6-7, when it says, Today a child will be born to us and the kingdoms will be on his shoulder, and he will be a mighty God, an everlasting Father. So now he's specifically calling the Messiah a mighty God. Well, the Jews were like, well, he's a mighty warrior, so he's God-like, like the Son of God, and kings would call themselves the Son of God, but that doesn't work. He says, you are mighty God. And then you can't really explain the everlasting Father away. Okay, No Davidic king was ever an everlasting Father. And so Isaiah begins to hit at that. And so, once again, if it was one passage here and there, it might be like, oh, okay, maybe we've misunderstood that. But when it's passage after passage after passage, it's a little hard to explain away, especially when it's inspired by God who does not make mistakes. And he's weaving a pattern here. Now, go to Ezekiel 34. Um, this isn't in Hebrews, but I want to unpack this because I want you to see the continuization we could go on and on and on with passages from the First Testament on the typology of the Davidic king, but I want to at least highlight a few here. Okay, now pay attention. God is angry. He's angry that he, their leaders in Israel, this is right before the exile, their leaders in Israel, and these leaders are shepherds. They're taking care of the people, but they are corrupt, false teacher. They have used Israel to make themselves powerful and prosperous. So God is condemning them. Verse 7 of chapter 34 in Ezekiel. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Yahweh, my sheep have become prey. The sheep are Israel and have become food for all the wild beasts. There was no shepherd, and my shepherds did not search for my flock, but fed themselves and did not feed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. This is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from their hand. I will no longer let them be shepherds. But the shepherds will not feed themselves anymore. I will rescue my sheep from their mouth, so that they will no longer be food for them. So he says, you will no longer feed off of my sheep, you shepherds. You are no longer going to be shepherds. I'm going to take my sheep back. And then he goes on. For this is what the sovereign Yahweh says. Look, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his scattered sheep. So I will seek out my flock. I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a cloudy, dark day. I will bring them out from among the peoples and gather them from the foreign countries. 
I bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, my streams, and all the inhabited places of the land. In a good pasture, I will feed them. The mountain heights of Israel will be their pasture. They will lie down in a lush pasture, and they will feed on rich grass on the mountains of Israel. I myself will feed my sheep. I will make them lie down, declares the sovereign Yahweh. I will seek the lost and bring back the strays. I will bandage the injured and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. So he makes it very clear that he is going to be their shepherd. He is going to personally do the feeding. He's going to personally do the guiding. He is going to be personally their shepherd. Then he says this, As for you, my sheep, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says, Look, I'm about to judge between one sheep and another, between rams and goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must trample the rest of your pastures with your feet? When you drink clean water, must you muddy the rest of the water by trampling it with your feet? As for my sheep, they must eat what you trampled with your feet and drink what you've muddied with your feet. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Yahweh says to them. Look, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with your side and your shoulder and you thrust your horns at all the weak sheep until you scatter them abroad. I will save my sheep. They will no longer be prey. I will judge between one sheep and another. I will set one shepherd over them, and he will feed them, namely my servant David. He will feed them and will be their shepherd. I, Yahweh, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken. So over and over and over again, I will be your shepherd. I will be your shepherd. I will be your shepherd. I will do, I will get hands on in your life and be your shepherd. I will send David to be your shepherd. Wait a minute. Is it God, or is it the Davidic king? Or is it both through Jesus Christ? Notice that he's already marrying Davidic king and God together here. Once again, you keep going, you go back and you look at these passages, and you realize this God-man theme is not new in the Gospels. It's not new in the Second Testament. And so this is why Jesus comes along and says, I am the good shepherd, because he is God. And he is also the Davidic king who's shepherding over his people. And he physically came down. And now, even though he ascended into heaven, he physically, well, he metaphysically dwells in us. And so, over and over again, when you look at these First Testament passages, you know those boring prophets that we don't understand what's going on. They really do a good job of marrying these themes together. And so this is the point that he's making here. Daniel 7.13 is also another one. We'll unpack that in the next chapter. That is by far one of my favorite, most powerful verses predicting the Messianic King. So then he quotes Psalm 102 in verse 10. You founded the earth in the beginning, Lord, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you continue. And they will grow old like a garment, and like a robe you will fold them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same. Your years will never run out. And so that continues that theme, that he is God and they are not. Once again, you fit Psalm 102 into that typology. Now we hit the climax. Okay, the climax of chapter 1. And he's going to quote Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is the climax of the entire book. And he'll keep bringing it up over and over and over again. The first thing you need to know about Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most quoted First Testament passage in the New Testament. Psalm 110 gets quoted more than any other passage in the First Testament. 
The only thing that comes close to that is the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is quoted more than any other book, and Psalm 110 is quoted more than any other passage in the Second Testament, which means it's a very, very important passage. Because the law of proportion says, whatever I spend the most time on is the most important thing to me. Therefore, this gets quoted a lot as a very important passage. So he says, but... To which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now go to Psalm 110. This passage clearly points to Jesus as God. And if right now, after two nights, you're thinking, You know what, Corey? I just don't see this. I think you're just reaching and trying to put things together. This passage is also quoted by Jesus to prove that he is God. And so this passage is so key because not only is it the most quoted passage in the Bible, it's quoted by Jesus. He uses it to prove that he is God and therefore it validates all the typology of David as God throughout the rest of the Bible that we've been talking about here. So Psalm 110. Here is Yahweh's proclamation to my Lord. Sit down on my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now David is the author of the psalm. So David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. So there's two lords here. He's talking about Yahweh. That's clear. Now, if you're wondering why I'm using the word Yahweh, the word Yahweh is a Hebrew word. And I don't have time to unpack that right now. But if you want to, I have actually have a document on my website called The Meaning of the Name Yahweh. Go look that one up. It is the unique personal name of God. Lots of gods throughout history have been called Elohim, El Shaddai, Most High, God, Lord, all that kind of stuff. Lots of people are named Jesus. Jesus is the Greek. Hebrew is Joshua. Lots of Joshua's, lots of Jesus, lots of Jesus. But there is no other being in all the universe that has the name Yahweh. And Yahweh basically, it's like one of those long word definitions. It means I am the ever-present helper who is always with you because I am and I have been and I always will be. It means I am always God, I always will be God, and I am the God that actually comes and stands by your side and goes through life with you. That's what Yahweh means. And so whenever you see in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it's Yahweh. If it's just capital L and then lowercase o-r-d, it's Adonai, sir. And the Jews thought it was wrong to pronounce the name Yahweh. They thought that was blasphemous. And unfortunately, that tradition is carried over into Christianity. The problem with that is, God said, you are to call me this name in Exodus chapter 3. For all generations, this is the name that you are to know me by. And the whole name means, they thought it would reduce to sovereignty. However, the name means, I was and is and is to be. But at the same time, it also means I am the ever-present helper who is always with you. So why would you take that name and push it away? It communicates both aspects of who Yahweh is. And so, there is no other God other than Yahweh. And so he makes it very clear, Yahweh proclaimed to my Lord. Now, if David is the Davidic king, appointed and anointed by God, there is no other person higher than him other than God. So if David says, Yahweh said to my Lord, who in the world is his Lord? It's not Yahweh, because Yahweh is speaking to his Lord. So David acknowledges he has two lords. But there's only one Lord over him, and that's God. Now, those Jews came along and said, well, it's Solomon. Because Solomon is going to be the great Davidic king who will build, expand the empire and build the temple unlike anybody else. So Jesus comes along. And he's in the temple. 
And the Pharisees are trying to trip him up and they say, hey, we want to get this guy killed, so who should we pay taxes to? Should we give money to Caesar or give money to God? And Jesus just one-ups them. This is one of my favorite passages in the Gospel. Jesus says, give me a coin. And they give him a coin. He says, whose image is on that? And he says, Caesar. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God. For a long time I was like, okay, that doesn't make sense. Like you're supposed to just tie the both. But the point is all the coins had the image of Caesar on it. So give all the images of Caesar back to him. They belong to him. But humans have the image of God on them. So you give the image of God back to him. Which means Caesar can have all the money. God wants your life. And Romans picks up on that in chapter 12. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. For this is holy and pleasing to God as your spiritual act of worship. So then the Sadducees come along. They want to trip them up. They're like, oh, this resurrection thing is so dumb. What if a woman's been married seven times? And they all die. Who is she going to be married to? And God's like, well, marriage is for the purpose of earth, not in heaven. And they're like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Then Jesus comes along and he says, I've got a question for you. And he quotes Psalm 110. And he says, if David is speaking about Yahweh and his Lord, then who is the Lord? It can't be Solomon, because everybody knows that a son is never greater than his father. And the father, David was the only one truly called a man after God's own heart. And so it can't be any of David's descendants, because they are all lesser than him. It can't be any of the two kings before him, Saul and Ishbosheth, because they were rejected by God. And it can't be any other king, because there was no other king or prophet. Therefore, it has to be a descendant of David in some way, but at the same time, it's not a descendant of David. So it has to be the Messiah. Therefore, the proof is the Messiah existed before David, yet he is also a son of David. It's like, put that in your theological pipe and smoke it. Okay? And they don't, and so basically he says, who is the Lord that David is speaking about? And they're like, I don't know. We always said Solomon, but you just made us look dumb now saying that. And I don't know the answer. And he's like, well, I'm not going to give you the answer. <laughs> but he does later. At his trial, he says, are they say, are you the king? And he says, yes, you will see this son of man coming back on the clouds to judge you. Well, only the gods ride the clouds and only Yahweh judges. And so he finally answers, who is that Lord? It's him, the son of David, but who is also the everlasting God. And so Psalm 110 is the climax of the David typology as God. But it's also the climax of Hebrews unpacking this. There is no angel anywhere like this. No angel has ever been asked to sit at the right hand of God and that all the enemies of creation will be made his footstool. And so this is the point that he makes here. Angels are not sons of gods. They, Jesus is the only true son of God. Yes, they might have that title, but they don't own that in their ontology, their essence, their being, their position, like Jesus does. Then he goes on in conclusion. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who inherit salvation? Now, only do the angels serve Christ like what was mentioned in Deuteronomy, but don't they even serve humans? The whole purpose of an angel is to guide 
humans to Jesus. Therefore, if they're guiding you to Jesus, they can't be greater than the thing that they're pointing you towards. In conclusion, the author basically makes the point this. If Jesus is better than the angels, then the covenant that he mediates is better than the covenant that they mediate. The Mosaic Covenant. Questions? So in chapter 2, we got a warning passage first. There are five warning passages. And these five warning passages are basically going to warn you. And the warning is kind of what I said. Jesus is better than the angels. So therefore, what he provides is better, but the consequences for violating it are also greater. Therefore, therefore, what is the therefore, therefore? It assumes you've already read chapter 1. This is the problem with like jumping in chapter 3 with a memory verse. You don't know what the therefore is there for. <laughs> therefore, in light of all of this stuff that we have unpacked, we must pay close attention to all of this of what we've heard. So that, what is the reason or the result of paying attention? That we do not drift away. Some of you are in danger of gradually drifting away from Christ. Because He doesn't seem so much better than everything else to you anymore. And we need to remind you of how much better He is so that you will not drift away. That's one of the keys to remaining in Christ is remaining in His Word. For if the message spoken through angels proved to be so firm that every violation or disobedience received its just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What was the punishment for violating the Mosaic Covenant? Death. Physical death. So if the the punishment for every violation of the Mosaic Covenant was physical death, then how much more will we not be able to escape if we violate the covenant of Jesus Christ? What's worse than physical death? Eternal death. Now, when you kind of read this, at first you're like, wow, that's really harsh. Is that what he really means? But if you really think about it, that's what we've been saying forever. If you reject Christ, you go to hell. But we're not used to putting it that way. We've gotten so used to, like, you go to hell if you reject Christ. You go to hell that we don't think about it like, if physical death is what you got in the First Testament for violating the covenant, then how will you ever hope to escape the judgment of God if you violate the covenant under Christ? If this covenant was given through His Son, then violating the Son's message is far greater than violating an angel's message. And yes, they ultimately both come from God, but the author of Hebrews, that's not really the point. The point is this is the Son. And this is what He directly spoke. And so once again, as I mentioned before, yes, the blessings and the grace of God get ratcheted up in the Second Testament, but so do the judgments. So do the judgments. For it was first communicated through the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard it, while God confirmed their witness with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. So it was communicated to us and confirmed by witnesses. Look, this message has been validated. The first testament message has been validated by angels, Moses, miracles, all kinds of stuff. But this message, the New Covenant, has also been validated. 
It was validated by apostles that gave their life. They did miracles. They did greater miracles than Moses. Moses and the angels did miracles of plagues, and they did miracles of um, nature doing things and deliverance and some healings. But the apostles did miracles of all healings, resurrections, all kinds of stuff. And so what he's saying is that this has been validated as well by many, many signs, and then ultimately one would say the resurrection. And then even further, if we tap into the Joel chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, Ezekiel chapter 11, Jeremiah 31, it's been validated by the Holy Spirit that's been put into us that the Mosaic Covenant never offered. The Mosaic Covenant can never put the Holy Spirit into you, but the blood of Jesus Christ can. And so that's a much greater validation that he ends up on, is that this has been confirmed. The words binding, just, confirmed, and testifying are legal terms. These are testifying in a court, swear by God, so help me God, kind of terms. You are bound by penalty of death when he says this. Testifying, bound, all these kind of things. And so here's the warning. Here's the somberness. Yes, Jesus is very cool. He's very attractive. But if you do not follow that up by a total commitment, then you are in danger of drifting away. And the judgment is severe. The judgment is severe. So don't drift away. Well, how do we not drift away? We must pay close attention. How do you pay close attention? You stay in this thing, this Word of God. And we need to be reading this over and over and over again. I strongly recommend going through the Bible in a year. I strongly recommend reading books multiple times over and over and over again. In the beginning, I was used to thinking, you know what, going through the Bible years, yeah, I see some benefits, but I would prefer to just read a book of the Bible over and over and over and over again, one book. Because I felt like by the time I got through the year, I, I forgot a lot of things that I read. But then I found as I did it year after year after year after year after year, that's where the benefit became. That's where I started seeing the picture begin to develop. I saw a picture as I read a book over and over again. But you've got to give it several years. Yeah, it's cool and that kind of stuff, but you think, okay, but how is this any different than just studying a book of a Bible? It's so different. Because you go through the whole book, and then you do it again, the whole Bible, the whole Bible, the whole Bible. And as years go on, you start seeing the big picture better and better. And then you start making the connections. The typologies start coming out. So I strongly recommend it. Um, I've never been good at it until my wife and I sat down and decided we were going to do it together and read out loud together. And that became a much... It's one thing to remind each other to do it. It's another thing to remind each other because you know you're actually going to sit down and verbally read it to each other. It's a much greater accountability. So I recommend do whatever you can to do that because there is strength and benefits in it. And so this is the first warning. Now this one's light. (laughs) Drifting away or you go to hell. That's light. We got four more, and they're going to get harsher and harsher and scarier and scarier. But so are the blessings. They're going to be greater and more exciting. Um, So pay attention.